podcast this week, we wrestle, verbally that is, with the seemingly unkillable David Arquette, star of You Cannot Kill David Arquette, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is getting in the Christmas spirit and then some. It's time to ignite the annual debate that divides households and families up and down the country, folks. Is Die Hard 2 a Christmas movie? <laughs> Join with me as we discuss it on the Empire Podcast. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, soon to be out of lockdown 2, Electric Boogaloo, and into Tier 2. Hooray! 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 And it'll give me more time to prepare for the annual watching of Die Hard 2. Because it is a Christmas movie, isn't it, my colleagues? Of such lethal cunning, Geek Queen Helen O'Hara. Hello. And nerd twat James Dyer. <laughs> I, again, and I can't stress this enough, I thoroughly resent my downgrading from nerd emperor to nerd you twat. You had appointed yourself <laughs> nerd emperor. You can't do that. All the best emperors appoint themselves emperor. That's how being emperor works. I'm afraid we had an election to <laughs> see whether you were going to continue as a no, nerd emperor. No, no. people this is what spoke. Happens. People. Yeah, you refuse to concede, Jimbo, but I'm afraid I won that it's election over. by a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Bigly number of people voted for you. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's all over for you. You are no longer a nerd emperor. But uh, <sighs> yes, enough of this boring is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate. Mm. It is a Christmas movie. Sure. Get over it. You lost. But is Die Hard 2 a Christmas movie? Yes. Sure. Mm. Yes. It's not much of a debate, is it really? <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not a big debate. I wouldn't have said. Yeah. There's a Christmas tree. I'm, I'm not sure. I think we need a little more than that. But like, it is really? set at Do Christmas. We? It is about reuniting families for Christmas. He kills people with presents. He kills. Well, he has such presents all the time, doesn't he? Really? It, it has oh. naked William Sadler, which is the universal sign of the Yuletide <laughs> period. If you pause it just right, you can see his ball sack. <laughs> wow, I did not. I don't know. That's true. It's pretty true. It's also true of Shawshank and uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. <laughs> Why are you? Never mind. I don't. I don't want to know where that Sadler came from. swells. Oh. Oh God. Wow. <laughs> what? Wow, that's the thing. I, that I will give you points for a very cultural joke, though. So. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was ballet good myself. <laughs> no, that that wasn't so good. Oh come on. No, that that was terrible. Mm. All right. Uh, anyway, welcome both. How are you? Uh, you know, can't wait for Tier 2, Revenge of the Fallen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Better than Tier 3, colon, The Dark Knight. Or Dark Knight, The Last Knight. The Last Knight, I'm thinking of. No, that's, that's, wasn't that 5? I think that was Tier 5. Oh, this, this is, is going to be fun. Confused. This is going to be fun because we're going to roll straight. There's only three of us this week. I should say that we had a late dropout, so there's only three of us. Which ordinarily means that we can't do the three-fact structure. But just to see the, the pain on, on Helen and James's face when oh, I say shit, we're I doing forgot. it anyway. There we go. Oh, shit, I forgot. <laughs> I didn't have a fact. Oh no, Chris, I can't do it. I've got a note from my mum. Too late. We're doing it. But wow. also, before we do, I've been doing a weekly quiz during lockdown uh, under the auspices of Empire on our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash Empire Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the rounds is called Order, Order. And kind of it's about how well you know your franchise orders, that sort of thing. I've never done the five Transformers movies. Six if you count Bumblebee. If I were to ask you right now to tell me the subtitles <laughs> of the five Transformers movies, oh. how would you do? Uh, I, I just looked up. I should say I looked oh, up Revenge sh- of the Fallen for number two. Revenge of the Fallen okay. is two. Yep. Number three the, is Dark Side of the Moon. Dark, that is the, the one moon. I remember. No. Is it Dark Side dark of the Moon or Dark of the Moon? Dark of the Moon. Dark, dark of the Moon, the moon. Dark dark of the moon. The moon is three. Yep. And number five is The Last Night. So four. Ex- extinction? Age of Extinction? Something? Age, Age of Extinction? Age of Extinction? Yes. Age of Extinction. And then it's Last Night. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then it's and Bumblebee. Then Bumblebee. Yeah. You know the way that some franchises are kind of like the old ones are good or bad and the even ones are bad. Like or good. Star Trek. Yeah. So with, with Transformers, the first one is good and the sixth one is good. Is that some kind of like Fibonacci like sequence? Like what should we <laughs> how long do we have to wait for the next good one? Is what yeah, I'm it's wondering. not even prime numbers, right? No, it's not, no. I've genuinely learned more about prime numbers reading the Jack Reacher novels than I did at school <laughs> oh my doing God. maths. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. Uh, but I know that six is not a prime number. It's not that, a prime well number, done, folks. Chris. Well Thank done, Chris. Well done. Thank you. So therefore, no. I mean, I will say that <laughs> genuinely for a moment, like I do learn shit like that from books. Yeah. You know, you do pick up stuff from books in a weird way. And if you read enough books, you become educated. Super anyway. smart. It's like but limitless. Only instead of taking a pill, you take Jack Reacher books. I mean, I wasn't specifically referring to Jack Reacher books, I should maybe make clear. Um, But Mm. yeah, sure. Are there any other books? (laughs) Oh, Chris, there are so many. So, so many. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. This is a fun game we've stumbled into uh, inadvertently. Can you tell me the subtitle to the Police Academy movies? Okay. 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 Their first assignment is to... Mm -hmm. Back in training is three. Back in training is three. Citizen okay. of Patrol is four. Yes, it's the last one. Five is Operation Miami Beach. No, not no. quite. No! Half, half, half point, half point. Yeah, Miami's in there, but it's not that. It's Police Academy. Five. Mission to Miami? No, Operation. Miss Mission to Moscow. Oh, oh. so it's the right one. I just it's got the right. title wrong. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it's it's Miami, but it's not. It's a... Opera- mission? Because no, it's Mission it's to it's Moscow, just, isn't it? It's Mission six. to Moscow. Mission so to it's, Mos- I thought no. it was Operation Miami Beach. What is it? Assignment. Assignment. There Assignment Miami Beach. Yes. Assignment Assi- yes. Miami Beach. Assignment and Miami. Police Academy 6, the one with is, Garrett Graham, is... That's Mission to Moscow, right? No. No, this one before Mission to Moscow. What? And I just don't, a- can't remember what it is. Oh, uh, uh, um, um, <laughs> I don't know. This is quality what is podcasting. It? City Under Siege. City Under Siege. <laughs> City <laughs> Under Siege. <laughs> Police Academy... Seven isn't even called Police Academy Seven. It's the one where they dispense with the number and they just go Police Academy Mission to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Okay, Chris, can you name in order all of the Carry On movies? No. No. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Excellent. This has been fun. I feel like those are facts that we can <laughs> rest upon, don't you? Well, are you going to submit that as your three fact structure for this week? <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I think that's a reasonable fact. That you we know what? Just Actually, I think I may be wrong about the Police Academy 7. Someone's probably <laughs> shouting at me right now. I think it might be called Police Academy 7. Mission to... Oh, fucking hell. All right, here we go. IMDb Pro. Don't let me down. See, I thought they had dispensed with the number by that point. Mission to... Mo- oh, my God. Look at that. They dispensed with the number. So proud. Wow. Plot... And jokes. Have you ever watched <laughs> a police academy in the cinema? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I've told this story many, many times on the Empire podcast, and I apologize. Oh, well, I don't but, listen to anything you say, so what is it? Uh, well, it's one of the very first, it's the first 15 rated film I ever saw in the cinema. And uh, when wow. it came out, I was seven years old, and my mother took myself and my then best friend, Gary McMillan, who was just a year older than me. Uh, to see it, and she didn't know it was a 15, and it was our local cinema, the Banbridge, uh, the Iva Cinema in Banbridge, in Northern Ireland. Obviously, she, we weren't allowed in because it was a 15, but because she knew the manager of the cinema, she went, oh, go on. And the manager of the cinema went, all right, then, <laughs> in you come. And so we sat and watched this movie that is, you know, 
you know, it's this quite sweet natured movie, but it's you know, it's you know, when it's with boobs. Boobs and sexism and homophobia and the whole thing. And uh, and it's got lots of boobs and of course the infamous blowjob scene. Is that and in seven? That's in one. One yeah. yeah. This was the one you watched, one. Did you? Well, this How one old are you? Oh wow. <laughs> I just fucking said. I know you don't listen to the thing I said, but I literally said it's in the story. <laughs> I didn't think because I hired out like one and two on, on VHS back in eighteen forty three or whenever it was that they came out. <laughs> so, you know, it was a while ago. I saw I saw um uh I think Citizens on Patrol. I think I saw that in cinema. Mm. But uh Well, I think the only one I ever saw in the cinema after that might have been three. Maybe Otherwise, they were right. all they were all VHS for me. Speaking of sort of uh, videotape, do you remember before they had like the the plastic blockbuster tape? Do you remember when they had those big puffy black plastic like with lots of air oh, yeah. in them? Yes, tapes, and they had a very weird smell. Do you remember the smell of those tapes? I was the only one who was sniffing them. Not the tapes, the boxes. <laughs> they had like a very particular smell. Well, you might have been the, the only one sniffing ones. them. Yeah, the massive sort of puffy black plastic ones. I didn't. I didn't smell them for shits and giggles. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't remember sniffing them. I do remember them existing. Yeah. Well, I, maybe I'm the only one who smelled them. <laughs> Tape sniffer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm a VHS sniffer. <laughs> <laughs> How did you not become a conservative MP with all <laughs> your hard to say. your foibles? <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the minister for culture was, was was had forced to step down the day after being revealed as a tape sniffer. It's adorable. You think anything would force anyone to step down anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very good point. Sorry. But uh, but yeah, those those massive big ex rental boxes or the the rental boxes. Whenever I first started really properly building my VHS collection, that's what I used to buy. You know, there would be ex-rental video fairs that would come into my hometown and I would go along and buy, you know, a bunch of this stuff. This is where I first mm. got exposed to uh, things like Prince of Darkness and Evil Dead 2 and, and whatnot. So, you know, you would buy these great big, you know, the really evocative old, mm. you know, 1980s thing. And, you know, I realize we're going down the Stuart McConey road here, but, you know, I remember going into video stores in my hometown whenever I was young and just being traumatized by many of the <laughs> the covers. The covers. The howling, the howling, Fright Night, Dawn of the Dead and um I spit um, on your grave. I don't remember that one being in the, in the video store. Hills of Eyes, Hills oh, of yeah. Eyes, Hills Ooh, of Eyes no. Part 2 and um oh, Tenebrae and things like that. Things like that that have just stuck with me throughout. And Squirm, the movie about the killer worms, which is not nearly as fun when you actually watch it, but the the cover is tremendous. Anyway, three fact structure, go. What? I thought that was it. Oh, That's not. How, how is that it? I don't know. You, we talked at about no stuff. Point did either of you present a fact? <sighs> I you have just a fact. Said stuff. I have a fact. Go on, I have a fact. If for no other reason than just, you know, <laughs> so I can be the SWAT this week. So this is a festive episode of the Empire podcast, as you all know. Mm -hmm. So what better thing to do than to talk about a Christmas movie? And this particular fact came to me in Sainsbury's. And let me tell you why. Because in the in the clothing <laughs> section of Sainsbury's, Lord, I it's, it's not where I buy my clothes, great. but I was walking yeah. through it. Sure, in sure. the clothing section of Sainsbury's, they have Love Actually pyjamas. This is 100% a thing. I tweeted it, if you want evidence of this fact. And they're not just Love Actually pyjamas. They are Love Actually pyjamas that has... Andrew Lincoln holding up the creepy signs oh, on them. God. And that is what they went with as Love Actually Pajamas. And i got to tell you, oh. that is a look. So, is that your fact for you today? No. My fact for you today is those pajamas, and indeed Love Actually, would not exist without Pulp Fiction. So, 
After Notting Hill, Richard Curtis took a little bit of time out and he had two films that he wanted to write. Now, one, one film was about a prime minister who falls in love with a member of the household staff. Sure. And the other film, the other film was about a divorced writer who moves to France and falls in love with a woman who speaks no English. And he was working on both of these simultaneously and they weren't really doing it for him. They felt a bit familiar. They felt a bit tired. And he's like, it's just, it's just not working. These were, of course, ultimately the Hugh Grant and Colin Firth strands of Love Actually. Now, mm -hmm. They were both going to be full films, but as he wrote them, he, he, he was aware that it wasn't working. So inspired by partly Robert Altman shortcuts and Nashville and stuff, but primarily by one film by Quentin Tarantino, he had the idea to write a compendium film and intertwine these stories with a whole bunch of other ones, which let him balance out the posh people fancying other posh people with the father and son story and the best man is a creepy stalker weirdo story. You know, important, festive stuff. Mm-hmm. And when he originally did this, there were 14 separate stories for his first draft of Love Actually. Now, four of those were ultimately dropped. Two of them, however, were filmed and left on the cutting room floor. And some of this you can actually find on YouTube. One was based on a poster in Alan Rittman's office of two women in Africa. And the camera sort of goes into the poster and they're talking about their daughter's love lives. And another one uh, was Emma Thompson's son who's having problems at school and the camera kind of follows the headmistress home. So that was the one that got excised as well. <laughs> Given how bad the stories are that he chose, <laughs> what does that say about the ones that didn't make it? Don't you knock Love Actually, I will cut you. <laughs> That's the kind of spirit of Christmas that Love yeah. Actually pr provokes. Oh 100%. My God. 100%. Also, Chris Marshall, who is the star of the absolute hands-down worst thread of Love Actually, the scene where he chats up the waitress at the wedding is actually left over from the, an early draft of Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, so that is my fact. My fact is that without Pulp Fiction, there would be no Love Actually. And without Love Actually, there would be no tasteless Andrew Lincoln pyjamas in my local Sainsbury's. So what you're saying is we need to go back in time and stop Quentin Tarantino making in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> to, to save the world from love, actually, possibly. I mean, I feel like there's probably another moral to take from that somewhere. But no, sure. we just go outside, we, we ring Quentin Tarantino's doorbell. When he when he comes, we just hold up a sign saying, tell, tell him it's Carol Singers. <laughs> you can't write Pulp Fiction. Yes. It will cause Richard Curtis yes. to write Love Actually, and then you will get a horrible scene with Andrew Lake. <laughs> I mean, oh now, my god. just because it's Christmas, I love you, and then leave. <laughs> yeah, and then he'd run after us and kiss us on the cheek for reasons, and... Um... <laughs> and I go home to chew and tell at you for... I just yeah. don't, I don't know that yeah. we're thinking you know, this through. This is not meant to be a Love Actually spoiler special, but does anyone else ever have found it slightly skeezy that Keira Knightley was 18 at the time mm -hmm. of I, filming that? Is that and... the skeeziest thing about the film that has that hike and catch crotch shot? Not the skeeziest. Like that whole storyline, I just, oh, it, it makes my teeth itch and I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't compute how awful that particular thread is. But yeah, hey, James, to me, that fact was perfect. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Helen. Yeah, I have a much lesser fact this week because, you know, I, I just came up with it on some, based on something I read this morning. Miracle on 34th Street. We're going to keep it Christmas movies because we're starting Christmas early this year. I don't give a fuck. And Miracle on 34th Street, <laughs> the original one is what I'm talking about initially, which came out, of course, in 1947. What month of 1947 do you think it came out? May. May. January. Actual May. Really? It came out in actual May 1947 because studio head Daryl F. Zanuck thought that more people went to the cinema in warmer weather. Die Hard came out in the summer. It's not indicative of whether movies. or not you're a Christmas movie. Hey, I'm not saying otherwise. Yeah, I think, I think it was actually genuinely summer both times for Miracle on 34th Street. They filmed live during the Macy's Thanksgiving parade the year before because the original Miracle was 
set in Macy's was told about Macy's and they refused their rights for the uh, for the sequel so it became this fictional store of Coles. But yeah, that one was nominated for I think three different Oscars and one one for Santa. Uh, let's boil it down. What was the actual fact there that it, it came out in May? Yeah, basically. I don't have a lot going All on. All right, today. but here's the thing. It wasn't about love, actually, so you win by default. Well done, Helen. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. To me, you are less oh. than perfect. <laughs> <laughs> James did have the best nuggety fact. Oh, he Which was that did. there are love, actually, pyjamas. Yes. I mean... Which I imagine are full of holes. And had you... Had I won... <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, I might have bought you a set, but now I won't. I don't want... Unless you're trying to get me to go full Martin Freeman in that movie. <laughs> no, thank oh, you. Love Actually is a masterpiece and I will hear no bad words said against it. <laughs> if you want us to do a spoiler special for Love Actually, I do. do I do. No, it'll we be mainly it. James defending a movie and me trying to lance it with a flaming marshmallow. No, I'll get Terry on because Terry fucking loves it. We should get Ollie on. He also hates it. Anyway, that was the three fact structure, and I'm sure you'll agree, a time was had by all. (laughs) Time now for this week's listener question, which, like last week's listener question, comes from a DM someone sent to me on Instagram. I appear to have opened Pandora's box by mentioning You don't need Instagram Instagram. anymore, because we've got fleets, haven't we? We have fleets, which are absolutely identical, to the point where, is it even legal that they're exactly the same as Instagram stories, right down to the interface and the aesthetic? Well, I mean, if you're going to say that, then you should probably be introduced to Snapchat. I think they maybe (laughs) have got there first. I I, I don't know. But But uh, but that looks a bit different, doesn't it? I don't use Snapchat because I'm not 12. Nor do I. I've deleted uh, it from my phone. Yes, but that was the injunction. I just, I can't be happy with it. It's enough to keep up with. (laughs) It's too much. It's too much. No, fleet is shit. Fuck off fleets. Right. (laughs) I have spoken. Uh, But anyway, yes. uh, So most people are DMing me or replying to my uh, questions on Twitter, and that's how you get your question read out in the Empire podcast. But uh, last week, Lauren Fenlon had a question read out via Instagram DM. I'm at CTAH1976 on Instagram. I'm toying with changing my name on there. So last week's question was about people being shaved in the movies. Not as lascivious as it sounds, I promise you. And we had a couple of people write in because I was trying to remember there was a sexy moment, a moment of sexy shaving in the movies. A few people wrote in saying there's a moment in Phenomenon where Kira Sedgwick shaves, (laughs) shaves John Travolta. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't remember this at all, so I don't think it's that. I don't remember phenomenon at all. Mm. Okay. I don't think it's that. And uh, someone also wrote in to say that there's a moment uh, in Skyfall when Naomi Harris shaves Daniel yes, Craig. But I think one we I discussed know. it on the show yes. last week. It's we not did. the one I have in my head. Maybe I just made it up. Who knows? But uh, if you if you can think of it, sexy shaving. But it's, it's, it's tinged not, not, with not danger. Not that kind of sexy shaving. No. Like that's, not, not around the, um, the nethers. But... You know, it's it's tinged with danger. It's fraught with danger because, well, you know... Shaving around the nethers, absolutely. But, you know... <laughs> always use a safety razor, kids. Always use a safety razor. Not kids! Not kids! No, wait, oh, wait, God. wait. No, that's, no this is going horribly wrong. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I've succeeded in breaking Chris. Achievement unlocked. <laughs> uh, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I don't know how much of a second use. Um, anyway, yes. Where were we? Who knows? Anyway, um, <laughs> where were we? 
but also in addition to that, so if you do know sexy shaving, send him in to us. But also someone has pointed out Helena twice in a row in the podcast. We have apparently claimed that Daniel Day-Lewis was born in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I and don't remember I don't saying those words. I think I might have said I thought born in, but not like, you know, yeah. having lived in a huge amount. I think it's the other way around. So I basically misremembered that he had spent most of his life elsewhere, but I, yeah. but from the wrong angle, if you like. Kind of, yes, but kind we should of, yeah. we should set the record straight because I'm pretty sure I didn't say born in Ireland because I know that he was born in, do you know where, where he was born, Helen? England? He was born on Royal Hill in Greenwich. Ah, oh, amazing. Which is not too far away from either of us. No, indeed. Um, and uh, he was born in Greenwich and spent, I think, a lot of time in Ireland as a, as a kid and stuff, but he does have Irish citizenship. He does. And that's what we were referring to. So that's that one artfully avoided. Now it is time to actually tackle this week's question, which, as I say, does come to us from uh, Instagram. And it is from Eddie Bolton, who is from Dublin. Oh, my God. It's all fitting together nicely. And Eddie says, I just watched Midnight Run for the first time. My question is, what are the best phone calls in film history? I'd like to kick it off with heat Mm -hmm. because I'm talking to an empty telephone, Chris. There's a dead oh. man on the, on the other end of this fucking line. Yeah. And uh, that is superb. And Bill Fickner shits his pants. <laughs> this is, of course, Jimbo, there is a sub-genre of the great movie telephone call, which is the great Robert De Niro movie telephone call. <laughs> I think he has it written into his contract that he has to do some phone-related shenanigans in every single film. So, yes, heat, that amazing bit, as Jimbo was saying, when Neil McCauley calls Roger Van Sant, played by Bill Fickner, who has fucked him over in the movie. And he goes, you know, you know, I'm talking to him, talking to an empty telephone because there's a dead man in the other endless line. And, you know, and then the aforementioned pants shitting begins. Um, <laughs> there are also great De Niro phone moments in Midnight Run, which I think prompted Eddie Bolton's question. And there's mm-hmm. so many great moments. That is such a phone call movie. But there's an incredible moment in that where De Niro is calling Joey Pants' character, who is the bail bondsman who has put up the bail for Charles Grodin's character. And De Niro is has learned that there's been some skullduggery. And he is he's with Charles Grodin's character, the Duke, and he starts yelling and screaming at Joey Pants' character. And he goes, you know, if, um, if you screw me over one more time, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, if you screw me over one more time, I'm going to shoot him in the head and dump him in the river. And the Duke looks terrified for a second. And then De Niro just says, puts his hand over the phone and just does a little shake of the head. Just to say, <laughs> Don't worry, you're fine. Uh, I love that moment. That's terrific. There's also a great phone call in Taxi Driver where he calls Sybil Shepherd's character after they've gone on a date where he takes her to the adult cinema to watch a porn film. Bad Travis, bad Travis. And he calls her up and it's just an excruciating phone call in which she rebuffs his advances and he dies inside. And the camera mm-hmm. actually pans off him to the empty corridor because it can't bear to look at his shame. And oh, and then of course, Goodfellas, where when he gets the news of the death of Joe Pesci's character, mm. he literally bashes the shit out of the phone booth and kicks it to the ground. So, like he's in a glass case of emotion, you mean. <laughs> he's in a glass case of emotion. Yeah. That's exactly what he is. So there you go. There's four De Niro's right off the bat. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, I was going to say Jerry Maguire, the frantic kind of phone race. Ah, uh, yes. Show me the money. clients. Yeah, that's pretty great. Um, I mean, stuff like Scream 
kind of goes without saying. Like, I'm not going to get yeah. into that or phone booth or, you know, <laughs> what? Oh, dial lock. M for murder. I mean, you know, uh, Sleepless in Seattle has a great, great one uh, to the, to the you know, sort of radio that gets him famous in the first place. That's a really, uh -huh. really good scene. And Doctor Strangelove was one that, that stuck out to me, the sort of the call to, the, yes. the red phone call to Russia. Yes. Um, as well as one of my all-time favorites. Uh, it's now, so Dimitri, <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 Sellers, pretty it's much sellers. on an uninterrupted take for about yep. five minutes. It's oh, genius. It's just so good. It's genius. so good. Yeah, I love um, that. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, His Girl Friday, one of my all-time mm -hmm. favorite films. Um, again, it's kind of running the phones, almost like Jerry Maguire style. I feel like it was probably a bit of a of a an influence, but it's um, Hildy and uh, Walter both kind of swapping phones and frantically talking to yes. people and running around each other and trying to take notes. Oh, it's just the best scene. It's so good. Big Liam surely owns the phone Here sequence we go. for taking. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we were discussing this earlier on because I was saying to the guys, oh, I get ready, by the way, the questions about phone conversations in movies. And Helen went, look, can we just not do Taken, please? No, no I didn't say not. I just said, can we not only do Taken? Like, it's not the only phone call, but it is iconic. I, I absolutely no argument there. Jimbo, how much do you, how much of that speech do you know? Uh, I have I have a framed picture signed by <laughs> Big Liam, which has that speech written out on it. The only only problem with that poster, the reason it's not on my wall, is the speech is shaped into the shape of a two. So it's for Taken Two, even though that sequence does not appear in Taken Two, and Taken Two is not a good film, which is why it's not on the wall. But other than that, having the Taken speech signed by Big Liam is a good thing. Mm. Oh no. That is good. So close, so close. Yes, taken obviously at the whole of the Matrix because there are a number of uh, phone calls. That entire film is based mm -hmm. on phone calls. Mm -hmm. um, you know the one in in Nightmare on Elm Street where Freddie licks her yes. face through the phone. Oh. His tongue comes out of the mouthpiece. Okay. Of the, that's mm -hmm. it's not okay. That's good probably one. grim. Uh, I very much enjoy the exchange sequences in the John Wick films. The way the whole of that kind of subculture happens to that weird, weird sort of 1950s telephone exchange mm. environment. Oh, I think that's really, mm. really cool. Mm -hmm. And I would also put the incredibly excruciating answer phone messages that John Favreau leaves for <gasps> Nikki in oh. Swingers, oh, no. where he just again and again, and then she's just like, don't ever call me again. <laughs> it's yeah. just excruciating. So painful. I can't yeah. even think about that with, without cringing. Oh. I think that's yep. a cousin of a distant cousin of the taxi driver moment. Mm. I, I genuinely wonder if that was going through his mind. He may have done it. It may have happened to Favs when he was when he was on the scene in Hollywood. But I, I do wonder, having rewatched Taxi Driver recently, I do wonder if there's a slight, you know, Annoyed. relation between those those two scenes. Yeah. Any more for any more? Uh, when Harry met Sally, they watch movie watch movies over the phone together. That's cool. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not the scene I was thinking of from from when Harry met Sally. Oh, it's when they're on the phone after the morning after, and when they've done it, and they oh. go, and it's it's Bruno Kirby and, yeah, and Carrie, Carrie Fisher, Fisher, and they turn oh. to each other and they say at the same time, they, they did, did it. <laughs> that's the moment. That is the that's the great phone call from that film. The, the thing, of course, is is that you know these are the great movie phone scenes, and this list will never change because, as we all know, <laughs> only psychopaths use phones these days, so they presumably will never appear in films again. That's a very good point, James. <laughs> Every normal person texts. Should we be writing, you know, or should we be discussing the greatest movie phone scenes that in no way involve using a telephone function? <laughs> yeah, it'll just be the greatest, it'll be the greatest tweet sequences. Mm. That's what we're doing. Not fleets, greatest tweets. IMs. No fleets, just tweets. Yeah. I've, I'm just going to mention a couple more. Mm. Dirty Harry's got a great sequence. It's not, there's, there's a good phone call sequence in that, I, I guess, ultimately, once he starts talking to Scorpio. But uh, there's a great sequence in Dirty Harry where he has to run from payphone to payphone 
to get Scorpio's call. You know, one of those situations. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. a payphone thing in uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance too. Precisely. Die Hard yeah. with a Vengeance echoes it also. Mm. And I just love, even though we don't hear the other side of the conversation. And listen, once again, this is not meant to be an, ex- an exhaustive list. You're probably shouting at us. We probably missed all sorts of stuff. We probably mm-hmm. made all sorts of omissions. Do write in and hopefully we can mention some next week. You know, the calls coming from inside the house, all that sort of stuff. Mm. But there's a great one in Ghostbusters which is when Annie Potts gets the first call. Yes. And we don't hear the other side of the conversation and we don't need to because she <laughs> sells it the way she, like her body language changes and she leans into the phone call and she starts getting excited and interested. And then, of course, boom, we put the phone down. One. We got one. Ah, oh, so good. So good. Do we count Han Solo on the Death Star radioing upstairs. <laughs> yes, yes. No, we're all I'm fine, fine here. We're fine. How are How you? How are you? <laughs> Got a slight reactor leak here. Give us, give us a few minutes to lock it down. Large leak, very dangerous. <laughs> He's a smoothie, isn't he? He's That's not fucking radio, Lando. you pams. I don't know. I mean, is it though? It's within the building, like, or, you know, moon, space station, The whatever. call's coming from inside the Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> No, because then Luke, Luke, you know, do you think Luke calls 3PO later on when they're in the trash compactor? He goes, 3PO, where can he be? You know, no, it's, well, I mean, he's not, that's not, that's not a d- phone call. I, look, it, it depends is. on your view of technology because like yeah. that is more like a Star Wars communicator, isn't it? And oh, that's exactly. what they use instead of phones. So Star Trek communicator, sorry. So, the, you know, it's just So saying. you think Star Trek, whenever like Kirk is talking to Khan... Oh my god! Oh my god! That, that moment <laughs> That's for the Khan. answer. Khan. <laughs> so you miss out the tea, obviously, for some reasons, but uh, it's implied, I think, if not explicit. Uh, uh, there's a couple more, but I think we probably we probably picked. Uh, oh no, I've got to mention top secret. I've got to. Oh, do I've got it. to. Must I've got you to. Always. I have to. I have to. And in fact, <laughs> this may be the first time this week I can use this listener-created jingle. Chris is talking about Top Secret. He mentions it every week. He's seen other films, but this is the one he mentions most. Wasn't that lovely? That lovely jingle? It was really, really beautiful. You didn't hear it, but trust me, it was lovely. Mm. Um, yes, the giant not, not just a giant phone, Not Helen. just the giant phone. But not just a giant phone. Is it what he says when he hangs up? <laughs> no, because that's a different scene. Oh, that's a okay. different scene. That's also giant, a phone call. The giant phone is one scene, and then there's the other scene where um, Jeremy Kemp's character, uh, there's a character who's in hospital, and he gets a phone call, and he goes, what is, the, what, is the, what is the condition of Sergeant Kruger? I see. Well, inform me if there's any change in his condition. He puts the phone down. And then James, get ready for it. Here's the punchline. You're going to love this. Get get ready for it. He goes, he's dead. <laughs> now, do you see the comedy there, Jimbo? Do you see the no. comedy? No, no, I don't. Do you not understand I, the comedy of Top there's, Secret? I don't, I, no. If there's a bright centre to the comedy universe, then... <laughs> you are the person that you're... The I'm the person on the planet that his father's from. Yes, that's, that's probably true. James Tatooine Dyer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I am very much on the outer rim. And I know Helen mentioned it early on, but we've got David Arquette at the show, and we're about to mm. link to him, in fact. So, scream. Do you like scary movies? I love yeah. scary movies, Helen. You Thanks do. very much for asking. Yeah, it's so great you're you're finally taking an interest in my tastes after so many <laughs> years of friendship. Uh, yeah, I do love scary movies. Nice one. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Cool. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor Podcast, apparently you can slide into my DMs on Instagram. Who knew? I am C T A H one nine seven six. It's catchy. 
Try and say it fast uh, on Instagram. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can also slide into my DMs on there, or you can reply to any of my tweets with a question for the Empire Podcast. Do try to use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, it does improve my chances of seeing the tweet. Right. It is time now for this week's guest. And as I said earlier on, it is the aforementioned David Arquette, who I think is most famous, well, A, for being part of the, the Arquette family, Patricia and Rosanna, mm-hmm. and Alexis, the late Alexis, and of course David. But he's also most famous, I think, for playing Dewey Riley in all four Scream movies, and now he is going to reprise the role in Scream 5, which is now called Scream, which is the same name as Scream 1. <laughs> it's all very yeah. confusing, but hopefully we get to the bottom of it in this interview. But you can see Mr. Arquette in this week's you Cannot Kill David Arquette, which is a gonzo documentary which follows David Arquette as he tries to make a return to the world of professional wrestling. Jimbo, you're a wrestling fan. I mean, I, I was in the late 80s, early 90s, but sure. Okay, but did you know that David Arquette, at one point in his career, round about the time of 2000, he made a film called Ready to Rumble? Do you remember that film? The Absolutely not. World of Wrestling. You don't remember not that film. At all. Good. As part of a promotional stunt for that film, he was signed up to WCW, which was you know a rival to yeah. WWE mm. at the time, and he did two weeks of appearances, actually getting into the ring, having fights and stuff. And at the end of it, by hook or by crook, somehow he ended up as the world heavyweight champion <laughs> of wrestling. <laughs> and this pissed off a lot of wrestling fans a lot of wrestling fans and they have been giving him shit for years and so he has felt for a long long time that he has something to prove he's a big fan of wrestling he's a genuine fan of wrestling and so this documentary follows him as he decides to make a return to professional wrestling and some of the shit that he goes through in this movie you know some of the training some of the the blows he takes there's a point where he you know comes very close he thinks he's coming closer to to dying it's Pretty engrossing stuff, uh, I have to say. And uh, I caught up with him on Squadcast earlier on this week. We had a good old natter about a lot of things, including, of course, the film uh, and where he is in his life. And, of course, we finish off by talking about Scream 5 slash Scream and what made him come back as Dewey Riley all those years later. Uh, had a lot of fun with this one. Hope you guys do too. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of and the subject of You Cannot Kill David Arquette. You never guess who it is. <laughs> He's got a hat on saying, I'm a fucking genius. Damn straight. It's David Arquette. How are you? Hey, how are you? Uh, that was from Alexis, my oh, transgender man. sister, brother. At the end, she wanted us to call him our brother. So it's a little confusing, but... She had given me this years ago. So you keep it around as a, re- a reminder of Alexis? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wear it a lot, be thinking of Alexis. It's a cracking cap. Do you wear it in public? <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. It's more around the house. We actually are moving, so I was just going through stuff, and I found it, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Got all yeah, I can up. imagine. And that, that, I guess, David, that's something that, you know, that this documentary has made you do. I mean, I, 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 have you been – does it make you want to look back – on your life and on your career. It's a, it's a very reflective documentary. It gets deep into your psyche, I thought. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did a lot of soul searching and, and reflection. And 
you know, it captured my life at a point where I was going through a lot and I just had to, I don't know, come to terms with a lot of my issues and uh, find mm. ways out of them and, and how to deal with them and make it through sort of a really rough batch. So it was a, it was a rough time in your, in your life. Oh, yeah. It, lots, of, lots of things converging at the same time, yeah, I, I guess. exactly. Years of therapy, years of, uh, you know, dealing with substance abuse issues and just kind of uh, figuring life out. I think it's all a journey for all of us. And it kind of uh, was, you know, I'd been beating myself up for years and it takes the form of wrestling in this film. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's been happening in many different forms. The title of the film is derived from a song about you, which is, I imagine itself, uh, an interesting experience to have a song written about you. But uh, yeah. the title, it, it feels, if I want to put my uh, sort of you know armchair psychologist hat on, it feels a little bit like you've been taking it as a personal challenge as well. <laughs> it's like, you, oh, you cannot kill David Arquette? Okay, watch now, motherfucker, as I'm, I'm going to give it a good old try. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, that's what sort of self-destructive people do. You know, yeah, and also like the attic inside me is always trying to kill me. I mean, that's one thing you have to kind of know. It could be long term if if you're smoking or drinking for mm -hmm. long periods of time, but it's definitely trying to kill you. It's little slices <laughs> of death that you're kind of <laughs> enjoying through the process, you know. And then of course, there's wrestling where <laughs> if you've just had. You know, a heart attack. Not not the uh, not a man stopper of a heart attack, but <laughs> never, nevertheless, <laughs> you, you dived headlong back into wrestling again. Yeah, I knew I had to lose weight. It was something that when I went through my, I got two stents put in my heart. And when I came out of surgery, I told my wife, God, I've been thinking a lot about wrestling. <laughs> She's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I don't know. It's just something I have to do. And I have to sort of clear my name, stand up for myself. That's what it mainly was about, sort of understanding self-confidence. Stop beating myself up and putting myself down, you know. It's funny because mm -hmm. my humor, a lot of my humor comes from being self-deprecating. I don't mind that. Yeah. But I don't like yeah. when people are mean, like mean towards yeah. you or talk behind your back or, you know. I just never get the backstabbing aspects of our culture it's so shitty it's an inherent need i think for people to uh to bring down others for whatever reason but but with this and with the the wrestling thing i mean i think to put it in context as well for you know british listeners to the podcast who may not necessarily know so you you um you had this this dalliance with wcw wrestling in 2000 uh where you became world champion um <laughs> Shall we say? Yeah, I mean, it happened. <laughs> it I happened absolutely. I didn't deserve I mean... it. I was. I did a film <laughs> called Ready to Rumble to promote it. They put me on the WCW wrestling program that was on every week, and mm. it got a really like great response at first because I was just going on and like becoming part of the show. And then they decided had the horrible idea of deciding to make me the champion. I wasn't trained. I was an actor, a comedic actor, married to just some, you know, a girl that's on Friends. And, you know, they mm -hmm. just did not, like, take to it. <laughs> I didn't deserve it. They didn't understand that it was just more of a storyline, like a funny thing. And it yeah. got a really bad sort of rap. But it lasted 20 years for them hating me. 
They see that's that's the thing I can't get my head around. The fact that this thing followed you around for twenty years, the stigma of this followed you around for twenty years. And if I'm, I'm if I'm right as well, David, the things I've read about you in know, previous interviews and things I've watched, you think it 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 sort of affected your career as well. Is that is that is that the case? Sort of. I mean, in the film. Uh, Price James and David Dark, they do an incredible job directing this movie. It's so heartfelt and funny, and uh, this whole balance of these worlds of make-believe and, and uh, reality. And yeah. They, they're they sort of telling a story. I, I wouldn't blame wrestling necessarily alone. I mean, just my personality is different than a lot of people, so it's hard for ho- Hollywood to wrap their head around me, but it's also hard for Hollywood to wrap their head around wrestling. And people in general, they just kind of write wrestling off. Like, oh, if you never followed it before, you wouldn't like it as a kid. It's just like, I don't get it. But there's all this really fun and interesting elements within wrestling, all these different worlds. That if you like sports and, you you know, if you like a male sort of beauty pageant <laughs> with, with <laughs> violence, I mean, you're backstage with these guys and everyone's getting spray tanned and doing their hair <laughs> and putting on spandex. I mean, it really is like a beauty pageant with like kicking and fighting and flipping and blood and guts. Yeah, it's, it's basically the Marvel cinema, uh, Cinematic Universe come to life. I, hey, by the way, they're the closest you can get to real superheroes, these guys, for real. Some of the shit you do in this movie, I have to say, you, mean, you mentioned spray tans there, and I feel like I, I feel I know you more intimately uh, having seen the film yeah, <laughs> than, I, got than my, I did before. I got my butt waxed because you never know if something slips out of your pants. I mean, there's all kinds <laughs> of like hairs everywhere. A funny story is RJ City, my tag team partner, he was he was shaving because all these guys shave their legs like in the shower and stuff. And he was shaving right before our match. And then when he was switching hands, he cut his penis, he told me. Oh, <laughs> and what? then he had to wrestle after. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was just a nick, like a, like a razor cut, but still anything down there. No, you no, you don't want that. You don't want to have to go to A&E afterwards but, and explain that. Yeah, but, you know, also, I mean, not to – well, I guess I'm trying to out-tough him. But I had three (laughs) fractured ribs at the time of that match. So it was so painful taking these like bumps down. You like you slam yourself down on these on the mat. And it's just you can't fake gravity like DDP says. And uh, it is so (laughs) painful. I have this just this sense memory of the like it's almost like a nerve thing. Whenever I think about it, I get like this shock through my system. Oh my god! Yeah, because some of the some of the hits you take. I mean, there's a there's a, there's a not to give too much away. Uh, you, you survived the movie, uh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Just in case anyone's watching. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. But- I have a death match with Nick Gage. <laughs> this guy, he uh, he's a maniac, and I sort of took this match because you know one of the things was people didn't think I was tough, and I learned that if you're tough in wrestling, that's one thing, but you could also be crazy. And I was like, okay, I can have crazy any people. <laughs> so, uh, so that's sort of what I did, and I, I wanted to show them that when I walked into this room where I had the death match, I mean, they literally hated my guts. And by the time I was done, they were cheering for me. So in that one match yeah. alone, although it nearly cost me my life, it really was yeah. what I was after through the whole thing, just to sort of 
be accepted by the wrestling fans, you know, not to be bullied anymore, to stand up for myself. And then what I learned also through wrestling and through all this is this confidence. And it's a confidence you need in life. It's confidence you need in business. It's a confidence especially you need in entertaining and acting in front of the camera. You have to have this like real belief in yourself. You've never struck me as a as an unconfident fellow. Uh, <laughs> well, I cover a lot of it up. Like I used to like yeah. dress really loud just because I'd have such social anxiety that I'd be like, before you could make fun of me or do any of these things, I'm gonna, gonna stand out or like do something to, you know, <laughs> I don't know to to like, yeah. I don't know just to 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 thwart the attack to come before yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it's a self-deprecating thing, right? It's uh, getting your licks in on yourself before someone else can. Yeah, for sure. I used to be self-deprecating, but I wasn't very good at it. No, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I love that joke. There are things in this movie, David, that just boggle my mind. Not least, of course, was the the sight of seeing you getting your butthole waxed. I mean, that will live with me for, until my dying day, I think. I'm sorry but uh, about there's that. things. No, no, it's, it's, it's that's all right. But there's also there's this incredible sequence where you're wrestling for cash in the street oh, in Tijuana. Mexico. Yeah, uh, I I was just going along. I mean. David Darg and Price James did such a great job of setting up this world, sort of starting backyard wrestling at the bottom, and then getting to yeah. train with the luchadors, and then having my first match, and then going on the indie scene. It's it's really just a, an adventure. The whole thing was like two yeah. years of my life, a crazy adventure. I mean, how did this start for you? At what point did you think okay, this is going to be a documentary. Did that come from you? Did it come from the guys? Did they approach you? No, it came from me. It came from me. And then I went to Bryn Muser, uh, who started a company called Riot with David Dark. And those two uh, had this amazing company, but they were kind of uh, moving on at the time. So uh, we went and started XTR, which this film's under that brand. And um, mm-hmm. and then... Uh, David Darg had known Price James for um, well, since they were kids and they liked wrestling as kids and they went to school in England together and um, and and they uh, just they, they 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 both went on their one different paths like David Darg did, did like uh, Ebola you know documentaries and was nominated for Academy Awards and Price James <laughs> did all these incredible uh, humors sort of more, more leaning toward the humorous side of you know writing and comedy and directing all these fun commercials and also film uh, shorts and all this stuff so yeah. uh, and shows so they all they came together and they were like this would be really something fun for us to do together and uh, thank goodness they did, because they were the perfect voices. And our first day of shooting, <laughs> we get in a barroom brawl with the Nasty Boys <laughs> in Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> and then we turn around, they like turn to each other like, well, this is going to be something crazy. <laughs> Started to mean to go on, I think. Yeah, it was bananas. Oh, this is a great story. This is a, one of my favorite stories. So, you know... They had not really cleared with the Nasty Boys for us to shoot in this bar, but we were doing B-roll because we were interviewing a guy named Eric Bischoff, who was instrumental in sort of the time period where I was in uh, WCW. Mm. And uh, so we were just doing B-roll, and then we didn't know all the guys. 
I was sitting there talking to to Eric, and then all these, you know, the wrestlers came in behind us, and uh, you know, they were moving the cameras around, and Jerry Sags from the NASA boy grabs the camera, throws it down, and breaks it, <laughs> and uh, we're like, "What's going on?" And then some guy grabs the back of my neck, and I look up at him, and he's got this big long beard. And I grabbed his beard and I said, if you don't let go of my neck. <laughs> and then his girlfriend punched me in the ear. But, um, yeah, that was the first thing. So then we got, um, they were got all, they were got all rough and stuff. And then, uh, Ricky Steamboat was there and, uh, they took us over to him and they said, Ricky, this is what happened. And. So this is a thing that happened on my first day. It's called wrestling court. <laughs> I got taken to court, and and in the wrestling community, like if there's a discrepancy in the locker room or whatever, the, yeah. the whoever's like got a problem, go to like the so most senior the, the the wrestler with the most seniority, and he gets to be the judge and jury of the situation. So he was like, "Yeah, you should have asked him to." Uh, to film and i had to buy everybody drinks and food for the night oh jesus there's a budget just flying out the window broken camera loads of drinks <laughs> yeah yeah Un- it was our unbelievable. It was a dream come true to be taken to wrestling court and have <laughs> ricky steamboat as the judge so do, do you feel i mean when was uh, are you done with wrestling now is that it or are you still are you still doing it? I don't know if you're ever done with wrestling. Once you're in, you kind of love <laughs> it's it. It's done with you. I mean, I love it. They, it is kind of done with me. I mean, none of the really big companies wanted anything to do with me, even when this film came out. So um, oh, that was really kind of like, oh, there's, I still don't kind of get the respect. <laughs> but I don't know. I like that it lives in this world. You know, mm. I, I like that it lives in that film. And, you know, yeah. it might be a cool way just to like... You know, just to go back to being a fan and just kind of, you know, not do anything with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, but I do love wrestling and I love RJ City and Dalton Castle and all these guys that I've met along the way. So hmm. um, I don't know. Maybe I'll do something at some point. The name of the film is You Cannot Kill David Arquette. And uh, that is something that has proved very true. I mean, not not true in all your movies. You have died spectacularly on screen quite a number of times, it has to be said. Well, one of my first films, I was thinking about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I died twice in that movie. <laughs> so it's not really true, but let, no. let's keep it true for as long as possible. Absolutely. So you should have an asterisk on the title. So you should be You Cannot Kill David Arquette, except in all these, all these movies where he's tied to I thought they should put an asterisk on my wrestling uh, you know thing there should be a little asterisk I don't care (laughs) (laughs) damn straight yeah and uh, but I have to say one of the one of the uh, the film series that that's proved true so far, of course, is Scream. You cannot kill Dewey Riley yeah. so far. Yeah. Uh, and you've just finished. I was going to say Scream Five, uh, but we now know Scream. officially it's <laughs> Scream to twenty twenty two or something. I don't know what they're going to call it. I don't know if somebody like goes to the store. I mean, I guess we don't go to the store anymore. So yeah, when they order true. it, like, oh, I got the wrong one. No, but um, <laughs> maybe that's part of the scheme. Uh, maybe it, it is, yeah. It was a lot of fun. I mean, we missed Wes Craven dearly while we were doing yeah. it. But uh, Matt and Tyler, the two directors from uh, Radio Silence, are just incredible filmmakers. And they uh, 
really were inspired by Wes to become filmmakers. They just really got really, they got really great hearts and they're really like, uh, they reminded me a lot of sort of his, his energy and Wes's yeah. energy just felt it there on the set a lot. I know that seems like a little whooshy, but, uh, really was like certain scenes, you know, and, and then like the wind would come in a perfect time. It's like, okay, Wes, <laughs> directed from above, you know, uh, I don't know. It was really great to work with Cordy and Nev again. <sighs> they have an incredible cast of, of actors that I, the world already knows a bunch of them, but I think they're just going to be so impressed how they sort of relaunched this brand. It's They did it great. I mean, there were moments where it just felt like, felt very much like a screen set, but it just felt like this new sort of a edge to it in a way. I don't know. Yeah. That's a, I hate the word that word edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But by the time the film comes out, by the time Scream or Scream Twenty Two or Scream whatever it's called <laughs> comes out, uh, it will have been twenty five years since you first played Dewey, and that must blow your mind in a, in a way. I imagine when you first set foot on set of Scream, you did not think you'd be playing this character or, or Courtney would be playing Gail or, or Nev would be playing Sydney 25 years later. I know, it's so crazy. I mean, I was supposed to die in the first one, but Wes Craven kept me alive, put me in the back of an ambulance, waved my hand. So thank goodness he did. It's funny. Uh, you know, I knew Jack Quaid when he was a little kid. He came over to our house because we knew Meg Ryan. Um, and you know, he comes over to the house and, you know, we just knew him as this little kid. Now he's grown up into this incredible actor, but essentially he's the same age I was when I did the first one. So I'm sitting here like this world is so like, there's been a lot of like, you know, you're getting older kind of thing. (laughs) Like, (laughs) life's moving. But, uh... (laughs) But it's good. I mean, it's a blessing to be able to do it and to work with such incredible artists. Yeah, see, Ghostface again, it's like, you know, I don't know, there's something fun. Like, you go into the wardrobe trailer or something, you just, like, see his costume. And I don't know, there's something, I don't know. It's like the opposite of Santa Claus, <laughs> but there's still something exciting about it. <laughs> Oh, by the way, who who does the because who who does the voice on set? Like whenever you've well, historically, this guy, yeah, this guy Roger. Uh, you know, there's a I, yeah. I forgot his last name. Roger Jackson. Jackson, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I've never met him. He's been on all the sets, but he hides in like <laughs> he hides somewhere, and then when he calls, he's on the phone. It's the craziest thing. But we've never gotten <laughs> to meet him. Wes never let, let us meet him. I think they put him in different hotels and stuff like that. But yeah. he's always around, and like I don't know, they <laughs> so bizarre. That's wild. I I didn't know that he actually went on set and did the voice. That is absolutely wild. That's that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if he did it on this one, but I know his voice will be part of it. But it was the whole yeah. pandemic. Of course, of course. I just had I had images of a key grip, you know, going, "Hey, do you like scary movies?" And then some guy just has to loop it. I know, I know. That, that does happen a lot. That's the worst when it's like a romance thing or something. 
Well, listen, David, if you need if you need a voice for a new Ghostface, I am absolutely available. Uh, <laughs> so do reach out. I will be ready to do Scream 2022. <laughs> oh, God. It's definitely not my department, but I wish you all the best. <laughs> I mean, I have people writing me on Twitter like, gotta get me on Scream 5. I'm like, I, I have nothing to do with the casting. Like, we got like tons of friends that I'd love to be a part of it, but I don't know how to do that. All right, all right. Well, listen, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a go anyway. I'm gonna campaign, and in the meantime, I'm gonna let you go, David. It's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers, fella. Thank you. Bye. All right, so that was David Arquette, and you cannot kill David Arquette is available now on VOD. Time now to talk about this week's movie news. It is, as we're recording this, Thanksgiving in the States, and Hollywood's been winding down. <laughs> Not that it's been like a hive of activity over the last few <laughs> months, but Hollywood is winding down for Thanksgiving. So there's not a lot out this week, or not a lot to talk about, really. But we should probably talk about the fact that you don't have to be mads to work here, but it helps. Yay. Mads Mickelson has been confirmed as a replacement for Johnny Depp in... Fantastic Beasts. Yes, we're still making this movie. It's 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 been quite the it's been quite the roller coaster for that character, isn't it? Mm. He was downgraded from uh, yeah, from Colin was. Farrell, and now he's been upgraded to Mads Mikkelsen. So you know. But here's the question: mm. Is Mads Mikkelsen an upgrade on Colin Farrell? Mm. Ooh. Well, they're different. I I don't. Oh, that's Ooh. tricky. That's tricky. I think yes, in some ways. Is he wearing tailoring as good as he was in Hannibal? Because that affects well, my answer. Quite. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... that seems fair. But I think he probably, like like Farrell does the kind of clean cut, you know, alias for Grindelwald better. But I think Mads probably does full on, you know, Mad-Eye Grindelwald better. That's fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I am not 100% convinced that Mads Mikkelsen isn't some kind of wizard anyway. <laughs> like, he feels like he's along those yeah. lines. And and so, and he is an uns, he can be very unsettling on screen as well. Like, he plays heroes really well, don't get me wrong. But, like, he obviously was incredible as Hannibal and is incredible as bad guys generally. And I feel like this is a, this is a really, really, really good choice for that character mm. and might actually make me care about him for the first time since, oh, I don't know, mm-hmm. about 10 minutes before the end of the first film. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm hyped for it. I'm here for it. Hey, I always thought Caecilius had a kind of a Grindelwaldy vibe to him. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, this makes perfect sense. Do you think he'll he'll go full of sheaf and uh, there'll be a scene in this movie where he's just smacking Ed, Eddie Redmayne in the balls with a towel? <laughs> God, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> with a bit of rope. A bit of rope. Yeah, yeah not a towel. I was, had a locker room flashback for a second. Yeah. <laughs> flashback to your school experiences. <laughs> yeah. No, we're we talking about films, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Grindelwald. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. But here's the thing, right? Surely Grindelwald's meant to be an unlikable dickhead. So one could argue, isn't Johnny Depp perfect casting? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I bet he's not. He's meant to be a charismatic leader who nearly rips oh, they, the oh, they, magical oh, missed world apart. Oh, they missed that by a mile. I don't, I don't know what they were thinking. But I think that's what they were aiming for in the second one. It's a little yeah. hard to tell, but like I feel like that was what was meant to be happening there. It was just very, very, very badly done. I, I, there's so many great things about those films. They look beautiful in so many ways. They have you know, people who are capable of great, great work, and then, mm-hmm. and then something always seems to go, you know, skew with. Yeah, yeah. But listen, Mads, he's gonna Mads. be good. He's gonna I'm be mad good. For it. He, up, up for it, up for it, Mads for it, Nebworth. Uh, why not? I think he could be. This could, this could, this could turn this franchise around. Mm. 
it would help if they finally start the story. Um, sorry, I can't help Ooh. it. But like, great. Let's let's get into it. Let's actually tell this story and have this yep. discussion. Yeah, Shots fired. Fine. Shade thrown in sorry. the in the direction of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Hey, remember last week that you said on the show, Helen, that the cast of David Leach's Bullet Train mm. had been completed. I didn't. Did I say completed? I, I certainly didn't meant it. Yeah. I certainly meant like added to, but I, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't well, aware I was saying completed. If you said you know completed, if okay. you said completed, then David wrong, Leach has taken that as a challenge. Well, fair play. Because in the last week alone, he has added Logan Lerman. Okay. And Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga oh. has joined the cast of this. Uh, yeah, I'm. Deeply, deeply excited about this movie. Mm -hmm. It's basically a bunch of assassins on a train. Do you think it's going to be like Train to Busan, but with assassins instead of zombies? Yes. It's like Snake Pliskins on a train. (laughs) Oh my God, all of these sound incredible. Uh (laughs) Brad Pitt, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Andrew Koji, Joey King, Brian Tyree Henry, Sassy Beats. Michael Shannon, he's a bad guy. Uh, How do you? Know? He could be. A, he could be a delight. He's hundred percent the bad guy. He played an angel, but an evil angel. No, a good one. Massey Oka, Logan Lerman, Lady Gaga. What is she going to do? Maybe she'll skin them and wear their skin as a dress. Oh, <laughs> we can but hope. Oh, yes. Maybe she'll. Maybe she'll kill someone with a poker. In, in the, the face. face. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the tie-in hit just writes itself. This it really amazing. does, doesn't it? Uh, there was some news last week. This has not been confirmed, but there was some rumours last week about things moving forward with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know if you mm-hmm. guys saw that. Uh, so it looks like Black Panther 2 is going to start shooting in July, uh, but they haven't yet decided... Or at least they haven't announced yet what announced, they're going to yeah. do in the in the wake of Chadwick Boseman's death. They have assured us no digital doubles, which I think yes. is a mm. good thing. Um, and and there are certainly rumours or speculation that you know this means a bigger role for Shuri. So mm-hmm. we don't know, but it, it's yeah, it's hard to imagine what the solution to that is. Really, we shall keep an eye on that one. Uh, I really, really, yeah, I'm glad that they've said that already because that mm. would have been horrible. And also, Deadpool three looks like it's moving ahead. I know. Who in the knew? MCU. Now, surprisingly, it's moving ahead not with the writers who were the first two, uh, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. I mm. don't know whether they're still involved, even as producers, but it's going to be written, or at least the, the first draft of it's going to be written by Wendy Molyneux and Lizzie Molyneux Loglin, who are also known as the Molyneux sisters. And uh, they have worked on Bob's Burgers. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to write Deadpool 3. So. What's going to happen? How's it going to fit in? I mean, well, you know, people take over uh, franchises, so that's kind of good. Apparently they impressed Ryan Reynolds, who is kind of, I think, keeper of Deadpool's tone of voice at this point. So presumably they've, you know, they've got that right. But yeah, it's exciting. They've, they've got a new ser- series coming as well called The Great North, which apparently will start in the new, in the new year. That might give us an, a better idea of, of sort of their preoccupations and talents. But mm-hmm. um, but it's just exciting that this is happening because, of course, we weren't sure that it would, that we weren't sure that Disney owning, you know, Fox would change Deadpool's future if it would mean that this was absolutely verboten, basically, to have a sort of R-rated superhero running alongside the MCU. So... Yeah, this is this is cool news. I think. Mm, yeah, 
doesn't mean it's going to be R-rated yet, though, I guess, does it? I mean, he could always well, you know, lots of jokes about he could do lots of jokes about PG-13 and how he's been forced not to say the F word and stuff. The, the, I mean, the rumour has been, the story has been, or reports have been, that it will still be R-rated mm-hmm. in the US. So we can certainly hope for that, I think, yeah. Blimey. Blimey, O'Reilly, as he'll say in the movie. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, at least these two writers might have heard of fridging, so that would be cool. <laughs> well, no wonder they've, they've worked in a burger joint. So Hey! <laughs> I'm sassy today, I'm sorry. It's fine, it's fine. You're bringing the sass. It's like an episode of The Office Ladies in here. Channing Tatum is going to reunite with Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Sold! Uh, for a monster thriller at Universal Pictures. Described as a modern-day, tongue-in-cheek thriller inspired by Universal's classic monster legacy that will see Tatum in the lead role. I wonder if this might be some Frankenstein-y type thing? I can see him as the monster. I can see him... (laughs) I can! I can! You just stick a couple of bolts on the neck and, you know, a bit of green makeup on the old face. Oh my god. Get him to dance around a bit. He could be a scientist. You don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I'm I'm sort of here for it. I... I don't know why the immediate thing I thought of when I clicked on this story, apart from it's never far from my thoughts, was um, Supernatural did a Universal Monsters episode. Oh. Uh, it was black and white. It had, you know, all of them in it. And uh, and I feel like they could do something similarly zany and fun with Channing Tatum and Lord and Mill. I would love to see Channing Tatum as a scientist, just so that he could stand up and Jump Street Star just go, fuck you, science! <laughs> <laughs> How you feel? How you feeling, Helen? How how you how you holding up after Supernatural finished? Yeah, I I I mean, I, I'm still a little dehydrated, if I'm honest, um, from crying quite a lot. Um, Steady, but yes, to be clear, crying. It was uh, very very emotional. They went extremely straight for the heartstrings in the final episode. Uh, some fan reaction online has been mixed, but mostly I think that was pretty much as good as you could get for a finale. Was was the mixedness because you only saw Sam's nipples and <laughs> Dean's nipples were in fact not displayed That was in the obviously episode. my main criticism. Um, but no, there, there's still a fallout of the Destiel situation, which was not resolved to everyone's satisfaction, I think, except in Spanish-speaking countries where they were liberal with translation and uh, certain lines were altered. So there you go. But anyway, but no, it's it's genuinely really moving and I don't know what to do with myself now. So I might have to, I don't know, take up a hobby or like work harder or something to no, just fill no my one, time. Nobody wants that. Start watching Bob's Burgers. That's what you got to do. There we go. Actually, yeah. I know what we have to do. We have to start watching the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. That's true. In order to be able to understand the Mandalorian a bit more. So That's true. as it's becoming increasingly clear with every passing week. It's like, oh, this new character's appeared. Oh, it's not a new character. What do you mean it's not a new character? Oh, they've been in like dozens of episodes of the mm. animated shows. What animated shows is, generally speaking, <laughs> what we, the conversations yeah. that we've been having? Do they wear a lot of plaid in uh, Star Wars Rebels? Because that's oh, not my condition. Less than, less than you might imagine. Okay. And what do they drive? What do they drive? Uh, Banthas. Is it true, Helen, okay. that uh, Nipples did make an appearance in the last episode of Supernatural? It is true. After assuring you last week that there would be no nipples in the final episode of Supernatural, there was a totally gratuitous post-shower shot of one of the Winchester brothers. Just the wrong one. Just the wrong one. But Mm. yeah, so I I did, now to my credit, I did instantly message you apologising and owning up to that. But yeah, that did did happen. But that is genuinely the first nipples in in Mm. genuinely years. Can't stress that enough. This is what it's been building to. (laughs) 
but then why build to this? Like, you know, uh, <laughs> just uh, supernatural. Why not go the whole nipple? I just don't understand. <laughs> anyway, back to movie news. Anyway. And, um, <laughs> Dan Trachtenberg, who directed 10 Cloverfield Lane, hmm. is going to make a new Predator film at 20th Century Studios, which oh. um, Disney haven't forgotten about, apparently. So how many Predator films have been really great at this point? Well, you know, one. Mm. Really great? As in really, really great. great? One As classic. Really great, yeah. I have lots of time for Predator Affection. 2. yeah. And lots of time for Predators. I have yeah. no time for any of that Alien vs. Predator <laughs> nonsense. No. And uh, sadly, even less time for the Predator. Yeah. Yeah. So, Sad you know, I mean, maybe somebody can rescue it and make it good again. I don't quite know how. If the first film was a was an exploration of, you know, ludicrous masculinity, should the Predator be going up against ludicrous femininity this time? So there you go, Dan Trachtenberg, that one's free. Um, well, it's, no, it's not. If you make it, you definitely have no, 10%. No, it's not free. <laughs> oh, God. You owe me $1 million <laughs> if you make that. A script for the forthcoming movie is set to be penned by Patrick Ayson. According to the story I'm reading on the on the internet right now, who's previously worked as a writer and producer on Fox's Wayward Pines, Amazon Prime Videos, Jack Ryan, and USA Network's Treadstone. To be fair, two out of those three shows are good. There mm. you go. Oh, and Kingdom as well, which apparently is good. Jimbo, do you ever watch that? Kingdom that is good. Kingdom? Yes, yeah. with Frank Grillo. It's great. Mm. Okay, good. So, exciting. We'll see what yeah. happens. You never know. It might be great. And that's given the benefit of the doubt. Dan Trachtenberg was... Absolutely. 10 Cloverfield Lane movie was very good. Good. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix in talks to star in Ari Aster's next horror film, apparently, which is called Bo is Afraid. And it's a surrealist <laughs> horror film that will reportedly centre around an extremely anxious but pleasant looking man named Bo, who has a fraught relationship with his overbearing mother. Hang on a second. He's done this, hasn't he? Joaquin Phoenix is just Joker again. <laughs> Bo learns of the death of his mother. Oh, okay, that's different. Under mysterious circumstances, and upon travelling home, makes an alarming discovery about his past. During his journey, he runs into various crazy supernatural threats. Okay, yep, sounds All good. Right. Yep. yep, absolutely here for it. Yep, yep. all sure. there. Yep, sounds good to me. Uh, and I think that's pretty much it. Except oh, for the new Empire magazine. Oh my good God. <gasps> but who wrote this cover feature and can tell us about it? Who knows? Some hack. Yes. Some talentless hack throwing words at a page and hoping that they stick. Um, oh, no, wait, it was me. Right. So you were right. Okay. Oh, I was right. What the is first the cover time. feature uh, of the new Empire? Uh, the cover feature of the new issue of Empire, which is on sale right now in all good and evil news agents, is WandaVision. How WandaVision. exciting. It has been more than a year, almost wow. a year and a half since we had our last fix of the Marvel oh. Cinematic Universe. Oh. Shakes, man. Got the yeah, shakes. No. Getting the shakes real bad. Uh, I look up at my... I see a, a baby dressed as Captain America crawling across the, the ceiling. <laughs> it's not good, folks. It's not good. And uh, so I'm very, very excited that uh, the the Baron spell is about to be broken by WandaVision, which is a six-episode limited series that will be debuting on Disney+. Plus. This is the first time that Marvel Studios has really gotten involved with one of the TV shows. Over the years, we've had things like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter and Runaways and the Netflix shows that nobody talks about anymore. <laughs> and, and each Some one of, of those... There were there were attempts to cross the streams, but it was mainly or the, the door really only just opened one way, and whatever happened in the MCU and the big screen affected the small screen, and then gradually 
Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. just kind of stopped paying attention and then the other shows hey guys, got cancelled. guys, we've got a new TV series. It's about S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, we just we just expanded S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes, we just, <laughs> yeah, literally season one. It's like, oh, guys, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, guys, um, we're disbanding S.H.I.E.L.D. You're infiltrated by Hydra and we're going to blow up all your bases. All your base are belong to them? Yes. <laughs> okay, let's go. On you go. Season two, have at it. And uh, But now Kevin Feige has gotten involved personally with these shows for the first time. So it's not just this show. It's a likes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, which is filming right now. It is She-Hulk and Moon Knight and Hawkeye with Jeremy Renner, all that good stuff. And uh, so this is going to be the first one. The first salvo is going to be WandaVision. You've seen the trailer for it already. It's Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany as Wanda and Vision, and they seem to be trapped in some sort of weird sitcom-y world, some sort of alternate mm. reality. What the hell is going on? Oh my on? God, Supernatural also did this. Oh, did they? Yes, <laughs> love this. We can expect Paul Bettany nipples before the uh, the first half hour is out and uh, so there's lots of you know this show seems to me to be absolutely bonkers I spoke to Olsen I spoke to Bethany I spoke to Kevin Feige I spoke to the the show's director Matt Shackman who directed all six episodes I spoke to the the showrunner and head writer Jack Schaefer uh, I spoke to Catherine Hahn and Tayona Paris and uh, hopefully got a decent overview of what you can expect from the show which is something that's utterly batshit crazy and unlike anything we've seen in the MCU so far. So very, very excited about it. And that's the cover feature of the Hooray. next issue of Empire. What else is in the issue, Chris? Fuck knows, Jimbo. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, I'm only kidding, Jimbo. I know exactly what's in the issue. And the WandaVision feature is also part of a massive TV special. It celebrates the television of 2020. So we have some wonderful features and some of the best TV some shows of 2020, none of which are Better Call Saul, but I forgive you. <laughs> I forgive you. So we have Michaela Cole on I May Destroy You. We have Alex Garland talking about Debs. We have a, a compendium, a symposium, if you will, of showrunners, including Sarah Phelps and Gareth Evans talking about how they go about running shows. But there is a whole bunch of movie stuff in there as well. You'd be delighted to know. Uh, we have a massive tribute to the late Sure, Sean Connery, uh, in which we take a look at his incredible impact upon cinema. And in fact, we also have a limited edition Sean Connery cover, which a very, very limited run. How is that available, Jim? But do you know how people can buy that? Indeed. It is available via greatmagazines.co.uk. We have tweeted about it. There is also a story up on the website about it. But if you go to Great Magazines, you can buy a limited edition. There are only a certain number of these made. I should know the number, but I don't. Uh, but <laughs> 5, Sean Connery Collector's Cover. 5,000. Only 5,000 of these in existence. Um, and it's lovely. And it's got Sean on the cover. Special Sean Sean Connery. Celebration cover. Yes. You have to read the entire issue like that. Yes, I've done the audio book <laughs> of, of this week's, of this month's issue, and I do it entirely in John Connery. Uh, we also have George Clooney. We have a big old interview with George Clooney, who is back behind the camera and in front of it with the Netflix movie The Midnight Sky, which will be out in December. And uh, our John Nugent had a big old chat with him. Uh, we have uh, a look at Chloe Sow's next movie, which is not the Marvel film Eternals, but Nomadland, which stars Francis McDormand and is already being tipped as one of the frontrunners for next year's Oscars. Yes, they are still going to hold the Oscars next year. And if they do, it looks like Nomadland uh, is going to be 
in the lead. And uh, I've certainly seen a lot of people saying that um, after Francis McDormand's performance, everyone else mm. might as well just not bother. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yet? I mean, I have seen it. It's uh, it, was at, it was at the London Film Festival, but uh, I look, there have been great, great performances by women this year, but she's, I mean, she's Frances McDormand. I, I mean, mean, she should on. have won for Dark Man. And frankly, at long yeah, last, right? at long last, they are acknowledging that. And it feels a little bit like, guys, it's a bit too late. You had your chance. Well, that's definitely what's happening here, Chris. That's, that's it. Put your <laughs> finger on it there. What if... The Frances McDormand, who has been given these incredible performances for the last few years, isn't mm-hmm. actually Frances McDormand, but what? is Dr. Peyton Westlake wearing a lifelike Frances McDormand mask. You have blown this thing wide open. We should ask one or both Coens if they're aware of this. <laughs> we, this explains why you never see Frances McDormand in daylight for more than 99 minutes. It's... <laughs> I mean, Famously. I haven't personally. <laughs> That's true. I, I personally have never seen her <laughs> in the flesh, in daylight for more than 99 minutes. So, Am I, I right guess, or am I right? <laughs> there's huh? no game saying you. There yeah. is none. There we go. You know, who, who hasn't interviewed Fancy? I interviewed her once and she went, oh, is that the time? I've got to run. I've got to run. I've been talking to you for 97 minutes. I must go. Bye. And then she sounded suspiciously like Liam Neeson as she left. Anyway. Uh, also in the magazine, we have the Take 20 section. We have interviews with uh, John Carpenter, Kingsley Ben-Adir, who's in One Night in Miami. And in my section, the best section in the magazine, <laughs> just skip everything else. Okay, read One Division and then my section, and then you can just skip everything else, guys. Uh, it is review. It is the section dedicated to home entertainment. Uh, we have a big old interview with Rennie Harlan talking about Die Hard 2, which, yes, is a Christmas movie. Uh, we also get we get very Christmassy in my section this month, and it was mm. all deliberate. Yes. Ish. Oh, Shane Black is in there. Yes. Shane Black is in there. We rank the movies of Shane Black because he is Hollywood's go-to guy for feel-good Christmas fun. We also talk National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation with Jeremiah Chechik, the director of that movie, one of my favourite movies of all time. Uh, we review the likes of Mank, uh, Possessor, American Utopia, the new season of The Crown. Uh, we have a spoiler special dedicated to the new Borat movie and the wonderful Rocks as well. It is a cracking issue, fantastic issue, filled with wonderful world-beating access, incredible writing, even the bits that Jimbo and Helen did. And I can, <laughs> I can thoroughly, partially recommend it to you. It's available <laughs> right now. It's on sale now in all good and evil news agents and digitally as well go to and you can subscribe and we do encourage people to subscribe because they get incredible subscribers covers bespoke mm-hmm. subscribers covers as you do this month is this a month, doozy this month is an absolute doozy so anyway shameless plugs over i don't think we've got anything else to plug apart from the carl weather special that we put up uh this week where we celebrate the life and work of Carl Weathers, and you can listen to excerpts as well from previous interviews we've done with him on the podcast. And if you like more Carl Weathers, we did an incredible interview with him for The Mandalorian, the episode that he just directed, episode four, aka chapter 12, The Siege, and that is available to Spoiler Special subscribers. Uh, so do come on into the Spoiler Special waters, folks. Go to my pinned tweet at Chris Hewitt for details of how to subscribe. We got all sorts of goodies awaiting you. And that is it, I promise you, for the shameless plugs. 
Okay, time now to talk about this week's releases uh, on your sofa multiplex. Uh, next week, cinemas are going to be open again in the UK. We are told, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. hurrah. Uh, but for the time being, the movies we're going to be talking about this week, if you want to see them, you're going to have to do so on video on demand or on the Gogglebox. And we're going to start with a movie that's available only on Prime Video right now. It is the new film from Alan Ball, the guy who won an Oscar for writing American Beauty and then created True Blood and Six Feet Under and oversaw the madness of one of Jimbo's favourite TV shows, Banshee, for for many, many years as well. Uh, this movie, it does not resemble Banshee. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe resembles Six Feet Under a little bit more. Yeah, but uh, I guess it does have a, a, a guy going to a small town in America. But what Paul Bettley does is not in any way, shape, or form, similar to what your bloke and Banshee does. Uh, anyway, Uncle Frank is the name of the film. It stars Paul Bettany as a New York professor who is gay, and uh, but it's at a time, uh, it's in the 1970s, takes place in 1973, at a time when it was still illegal in certain states. And when his father dies, he goes back with his uh, young niece, played by Sophia Lillis, and his lover, Wally, played by Peter McDizzy, and all sorts of revelations uh, heap upon him. Hell's bells. Yeah, so this is essentially a family drama, really. You know, our, our kind of point of view character is Sophia Lillis' Lillis's Beth, um, and she's very good. You know, you, you know her from It, but uh, but she's really growing into to herself, I think, as an actress. But she isn't the primary character. She may be the person whose eyes we're kind of, you know, experiencing this world through initially, but it's very much Frank's story. And um, Paul Bettany is fantastic, I thought, in it. And it is, like I say, a small scale family kind of melodrama uh, in many ways. We we in, we meet him when uh, Beth is only 14. He kind of encourages her on her route. He's, you know, this cool, wise figure who kind of drops into her life every few months or every couple of years and she basically worships mm. and then he goes back to his real life. Like um, I am and for my nieces and nephew. Very much, very much like that. The same kind of hero worship and just unfailing, you know, uh, regard, I guess. Mm. That those Posters, that tattoos, the things yeah, that I insist they have I mean, of me. <laughs> yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about those tattoos, Chris. I just, I just don't think it's right. I mean, especially to have them on their faces. You know, it's not. It's a lot to ask Listen, of a young I, person. I did those tattoos myself. There's a lot of love in those tattoos. That's, I mean, anyway, your poor family. Um, but anyway, it. You know, we we actually sort of get into the, the movie when, of course, he heads home for his father's funeral with Beth in tow, and unbeknownst to him, with. Wally following behind because he's just he's a really warm-hearted guy and mm -hmm. his boyfriend he he wants to meet the family he wants to be part of their life he wants to have a sort of a normal existence and and he's willing to just you know stay back and just be close and just be there for Frank and not yeah. ever let anyone know that he exists but at the same time he wants to be involved in some way and it's just a beautiful beautiful portrayal of their relationship a, a heartbreaking portrayal of the kind of systematic prejudice that they had to deal with at the time um and a really good character study of the way that those forces that this guilt and this fear and this homophobia shapes people and warps people's lives and, you know, stops them from, you know, being happy or having, you know, normal relationships with their family. So mm. I thought it was a real heartbreaker and, you know, just good performances all around. It's it's not a sort of a quote unquote big film. Um 
but it's but it's really really heartfelt and I thought quite mm. effective. Yeah, it's not the movie I thought it was going to be. If I'm completely mm. honest, I, the um, the trailer is slightly misleading in that the trailer makes it look like a happy go lucky comedy. Yeah, and it's not that. It is, as you say, a very very heartfelt drama. Clearly, there is. You know, I don't know fully, but I, I imagine there is quite a bit of Alan Ball and maybe his experiences in Frank and maybe also a little bit in Beth as well. But clearly yeah. he, you know, he, you know, he's he's tackled themes of sexuality in the past and you know really tackles it head on here. This yeah. is a drama. This is a, a very uh, heart-rending drama. And I was surprised by how much the final act affected me. Mm. Not least because I'd read a bunch of reviews beforehand that said it was kind of, you know, all damning with faint praise, fairly middling. And even our own review says that, you know, the, the final act wraps things up a little bit too quickly, maybe even a little bit too neatly. I didn't feel that at all. No. I think there's an incredible moment. I mean, Bethany's uh, great in this movie. I, I know that this movie was initially touted as a potential Oscar contender, and that seems to have faded away somewhat. And it would be a bit of a shame if he got lost in the shuffle, because mm. he's really good in this. And there's a, a moment, I'm not going to give it away, but there's there's a moment towards the end that triggers an emotional reaction from Frank, which I think is up there with the best bits of screen acting I've seen all year. Um, yeah. And it's really, really good, really well written. I think it does have flaws, but I really liked these characters. I think Peter McDissey, who is Alan Ball's partner in real life and is also the producer of the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, is tremendous mm -hmm. in this. Uh, he is such a ray of sunshine in, in this movie. He's got such compassion as Wally. And Sophia Lillis is great, although her character does recede into the background the more the movie goes on. So it's an interesting creative decision by Ball to mm. do that, which is, makes me wonder if there's a lot of him in Beth, you know, the, the Beth's not struggling with her sexuality, but perhaps, you know, who has a, a, a sort of, you always know, always felt a, like an outsider. A, yeah. feels like an outsider, yeah. but also has someone in her family that they've always gravitated towards yeah. and, and maybe, you know, been drawn towards that person. Maybe there's part of him in Beth and maybe there's part of him in Frank as well. But uh, yeah, I thought this was terrific. We gave it three stars, but uh I would have gone four myself. I but, think I yeah, would but, have as well. But, but hey-ho, three stars is a recommendation. And when you don't even have to leave your sofa, stick an extra <laughs> star on. Why the hell not? Um, and interesting enough, I think that this movie, Uncle Frank, shares thematic preoccupations with the next movie we're going to talk about, which is a little sunnier. It's a little... It is a comedy. <laughs> the, the trailer is not misleading for this one. It is happiest season. And this is the, the movie directed by Claire Duvall, co-written by Claire Duvall as well, uh, in which Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis play a couple who go home to Mackenzie Davis's family for Christmas. Here's the wrinkle. Mackenzie Davis's character, Harper, she has not yet come out to her family who are somewhat on the conservative side. Uh, and so she convinces Kristen Stewart to pretend that they are actually just roommates and not in a relationship at all. So once again, shenanigans and revelations abound, but this time with a very, very Christmassy feel. Uh, Jimbo, what do you think about this movie? Well, this is schmaltzy. It is saccharine. It is Christmas syrup that, frankly, would give almost anyone diabetes. And yet, and yet, and yet, it's kind of wonderful. 
which surprised me quite a lot. So it is the setup is exactly as you describe at Harper tells Abby on the way to her parents' house that she has yet to come out to them, and so they have to pretend to be roommates. Uh, and you throw in an older sister with a big old stick up her bum, played by Alison Brie, not literally, obviously, uh, and a younger sister with a working knowledge of fantasy nerdery that would put Helen to shame. And then you've got a party. Um, so I should probably preface this by saying that aside from love, actually, Christmas movies are not generally my thing. And yet there's something just quite delightful about this. It's really really charming like davis and stewart are compelling and they really make you kind of root for them even if harper is absolutely maddening um i think mary holland is a delight in this and alison brie as well are great as uh, as her sisters uh also daniel levy who plays abby's best yes. friend john oh. is fucking genius and him pretending to be him being gay pretending to be straight and doing small talk with a straight guy scene mm. is just comedy it's, legend it's one of the funniest things i've ever seen yeah he's an instant comedy gay best friend hall oh, of famer absolutely mm. he's brilliant absolutely brilliant uh, plus you've got aubrey plaza in there as well as harper's ex and let's not forget that her you know her straight laced parents are victor garber and mary steenbergen uh and they are <laughs> they're also very very good in those roles as well so um honestly i think what really works about this is it succeeds in kind of being funny and charming and also conveying that cockle warming festive spirit that only christmas movies really do but sometimes can feel a bit suffocating in this case really doesn't and it does give you the warm and fuzzies i think it's really helped because duval's script is very very tight mm -hmm. and there's a lot of great lines in it and also i mean kind of it starts with a with a mrs claus and reindeer bdsm gag and i think that really kind of sets the tone quite nicely the only thing about this film honestly that i didn't like is one scene which takes place in a mall has a pair of mall cops including lauren lapkus aka the wrong missy something about that just didn't work for me at all like tonally it feels like it's part of a different movie and it yeah. really irritated me especially because you've got like straight-faced kristen stewart sitting opposite her i was just like what is this scene and why is it in this film mm. That's the only thing about this that I didn't like. Other than that, I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. I thought it was funny. It really genuinely had me, you know, like glowing with warmth by the end of it. And, and you know, possibly even a little bit like, oh, at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. super charming. It really is super charming. And I think everything you said about the characters is right. But what I think is great is Grizzly Stewart is, is kind of... Um, pretty restrained, I think, as Abby. It's quite a quiet performance. Yeah. You know, she is a not very uh, talkative, you know, quite almost shy uh, person. She has quite strongly held opinions. Like she is, you know, the one who is kind of making a lot of decisions, I think, in their relationship. But she, mm. she doesn't kind of put herself forward. She doesn't kind of push herself into the way. And yet you always like identify with her you're you're rooting for her you're absolutely on her side throughout without her being a sort of one-dimensional goody two-shoes mm. kind of a character she just feels incredibly likable and you just desperately want the best for her so when harper keeps going to these great lengths to hide the truth of their relationship from her family you can see uh, abby kristen stewart's character just desperately trying to be supportive and go along with this and be helpful and not cause any problems or any waves, but also just being heartbroken by what's happening. And I just thought, I just really, really, really felt for her and I thought she was great in it. And I think it's mm. the most, I think people out there who think they don't like Kristen Stewart should absolutely, first of all, that's ridiculous. She's amazing. You should get mm. on board. But secondly, <laughs> I mean, she is great in this film and she is incredibly likable. So watch this as your kind of medicine to get over that anti-Twilight bias. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. No one's still banging that drum, are they? I swear to God, there are people out there. Anyway.
Okay. Hope not. There are. I mean, certainly she gets accused of like uh, having like that perma scowl. Do you know what I mean? Like the, which, and she 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 has it a touch in this, but it, mainly because she plays. You know, no pun intended. She plays it very straight. Like lots of crazy stuff goes on around her, but she is very much a straight man in this film. Mm. And uh, and she's but she's 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 very charming and accessible. And I think there's as you said, there's a real sensitive side to her in that that you really feel for her. Mm. And I don't think mm. she comes across as whole. I think she comes across as reserved, but also very warm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really lovely little film. I, I think Jimbo Lee, the scene you're talking about. Uh, with Lauren Lapkus. And let's not tar Lauren Lapkus with the wrong Missy brush, shall <laughs> okay. we? She's fantastic. Comedian extraordinaire Lauren Lapkus. That's better, that's better. You're right. I should not, I should not. But the wrong Missy, I, it, I, the mental scars run deep. <laughs> yeah, this is true. But uh, it's got Lauren Lapkus and Timothy Simons, who have both obviously worked with Mary Holland, who's very mm. funny in this movie and co-wrote the movie with Claire Duval. So I think that's maybe where that came from. And maybe mm. it's a bit of improv that just went, went wild. It feels but, like yeah. improv, yeah. yeah. But that's that's fine. Because the it's craziness okay. factor does amp up as the film goes on. But yeah. at that point, it's still quite restrained. And so I think if it had come at the end of the film, mm. it wouldn't have been any better, but it would have jarred yeah. less. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but it's terrific. It is terrific. It's got a great cast as well. And they all get their little arcs. It's, it's a very, very nicely attended to script, I would say, as well. Everyone mm. has something to do. Everyone gets a bit of business. And the, the interplay between the three sisters is very funny. Uh, it made me laugh quite a lot. Hmm. And yes, Dan Levy. Yes, oh, very, genius. very, very funny Absolute indeed. Genius. Four stars then for happiest season, and we all concur, and so say all of us. Suspecting, sadly, that the next Christmas movie we're going to review on the show, I haven't had time to watch it. It's The Christmas Chronicles 2, Hell's Bells. And yeah, it is. I've heard it's not good. Is it good? I is mean, it not I good? I didn't think it was bad. It's perhaps not the sort of pleasant surprise that the first one was. I feel like we uh, were kind of a little bit taken off guard by that. And this one, we've obviously had time to prepare ourselves, if you will. <laughs> Batten down the hatches for Santa Claus, Kurt Russell. I mean, yeah, it's look, it's a very, it's a very disturbingly handsome Santa Claus. And, you know, it takes a moment to kind of, you know, gear yourself up for that. Yeah, but yes, yeah. he is back as Santa Claus. We actually opened the film, of course, however, with Kate Pierce. Played by Darby Camp, who was the little girl last time. A little bit older, obviously. Time has 47 passed. now, I believe. <laughs> but she's on holiday for Christmas, which she's not impressed about. She's on Ugh. a beach in Mexico. Um, her mum, of course, Kimberly Williams Paisley, um, is oh, God, dating. I love what you keep saying, of course. It's of course. Course. All these you characters know. and actors are burned into our brains. <laughs> you know, Claire, her mum. You remember her well, of course. Um, is now dating Bob, who's played by Tyrese Gibson. Not of kidding. Of course. Yeah. Really? Kate, yeah, not kidding. Ty, uh, wow. Tyrese is dating Claire. Uh, they are... It's all going well. And this is freaking Katie out. She is not sure she wants her mum to remarry. She feels like that is some kind of betrayal of her late father, of course, Doug. And uh, and she's not sure she wants a new little brother who's Jack, played by Jezier Bruno, who is the most adorable child I've seen this year on screen, I think. Wow, that's saying something. Well, actually, no, he's he's up there. I'm just remembering rocks. So. Yes. Okay, I apologise, but he's in the top ten for sure. He's a, he's an adorable, adorable, slightly <laughs> slightly worried, anxious little kid. Anyway, all seems fine until Ricky Baker turns up, being a bad egg. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a what? Julian Dennison turns up. We have listeners from New Zealand. I'm pretty sure you just declared war on them. I'm a, I would like to apologise to all of them. I can't. They, how do you say it? Biddig. 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 I don't. <laughs> The point You've gone is, full cog. Yeah. <laughs> the point is, 
Julian Dennison, for it is he, plays Belsnickel, who is a former North Pole elf who wants to blah, 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 destroy stuff, whatever, and uses Katie to get back into Santa's village. So we then have Santa getting involved. How far uh, in the movie are we wormholes. now? I mean, we're about five minutes in, to be perfectly right, honest. Okay. Um, but yeah, but it, it, it gets very, very complicated. So Belsnickel right. is, the, is the threat. Katie no. and Jack must work together and learn about the importance of change and being open to new people in your life and mm-hmm. you know stuff like that, spoilers. And meanwhile, Santa and Mrs. Claus, Goldie Hawn is in a much bigger role this time, have to do the things to stop the stuff and help the, save the day. Okay, cool. Sound, so what's wrong? What's, what, so, and we should also mention that Chris Columbus, who wrote the first movie, yes, he did. and has, has directed uh, Christmas movies in the past, the, um, the movie that's considered to be a classic by a lot of people, Home Alone being one of them. Wow, that was really passive-aggressive. Was it? You I hadn't really? noticed. <laughs> and, uh, by, by, by a lot of mistaken people. And uh, <laughs> so he's back. He's in the director's chair on this one. and he um, is. Yeah. So, how, so what's wrong with it? I don't think things are wrong with it so much. I just think it's it's a little over involved. You know, it's one of these things where you you know one person has to go and get that thing, and the other person has to go and do that task, and it gets a bit video gamey um, in terms of kind of defeating the bad plan and and saving Christmas. And I just I would maybe have liked a little bit more of a kind of straight through line, but I I didn't think it was bad. I just okay. didn't think it was like stunning. And and Kurt Russell is still a very sexy Santa, which He's is very show. disturbing. He really is. It's 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 genuinely I don't understand how that works, but there we are. He has to be a smoke show, that's how he gets down people's chimneys. <laughs> wow, you've broken this thing wide open. I, 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 honestly, I am destroying Hollywood's lies this week. Uh, all the all the conspiracy theories, I'm breaking them open. Uh, how are Kurt and Goldie together? Good. I would have liked her to have much more comedy than she does. She's very much a sort of lovely, charming Mrs. Claus figure instead of being an incredible Goldie Hawn character. Sorry. That's a shame. Yeah. Uh, is there a bit where he plays music? There is, and it involves Darlene Love. Oh my good God. Yeah. Very That's incredible. There. I apologise. That's incredible. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> That's incredible. Do they sing um, Christmas, please, please Come Home? They don't sing that? No, they don't sing that. If you want her singing that on screen, of course, you're going to have to go and um, rewatch New Girl. I don't remember which season, but it's in there somewhere. You know, um, when Fala and I went to New York a couple of years ago, around about this time of year in December, uh, the last thing we did was see Darlene Love perform oh, at B.B. King's Club. Amazing. And it was incredible. Incredible. <sighs> Absolute legend. Actually, the, technically speaking, the last thing we did in New York was we saw Liverpool play Arsenal in Jimmy Carragher's pub on West 36th Street. But the last thing we did that Fala enjoyed was <laughs> <laughs> was to see Darlene Love. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. All right. So uh, sounds like all that Helen wants for Christmas is to give the Christmas Chronicles two three stars. Yeah, I'd go with the three. Next up, we have the latest film from Cronenberg. And uh, as you might expect... It's got all the things that you would expect from a Cronenberg movie. It's got lots of body horror and lots mm. of identity crises yeah. and mind melds and prosthetic Ooh. erections. You know, usual sort of stuff mm. that you would expect from David Cronenberg. However, what? Stop what? the presses. This is not David Cronenberg. This movie, Possessor, is written and directed by his son, Brandon Cronenberg, but really feels like a chip off the old block. Wow. So yeah. what's, what, who stars in it? What's the story? 
Well, Helen, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, it stars Andrea Riseborough as a kind of neural assassin. So there's a, there's a really lovely sci-fi twist to this, which puts it in the realms of sort of, it's, it's like a crazy body swap comedy horror okay. in, a, in a weird way. It's like, it's like Vice Versa. No, it's not. It's not. It's nothing like Vice Versa. It's nothing like Big. So she plays a corporate assassin. And the, the high concept idea here is that her consciousness is implanted into the body of an average person and she possesses them. She is the possessor of the title and she okay. uses the time that she's spending in this body to kill people. So okay. she has she has targets and we see and there's an opening sequence which is uh, which basically sets out the soul of this movie, which is that it's gonna be really, really clever, really slick, really, really well directed, quite cold, quite clinical, and deeply, deeply violent. But we get to see this happening. We get to see a murder take place, an assassination, a hit. But because she's implanted in someone's body, the cops will never suspect that it's an assassination. As far as they're concerned, it's just one of those moments where someone has just flipped. Mm. And gone crazy and started killing someone. Whoa, so, sinister. So uh, she plays Tazia Foss, which is an incredible Cronenbergian name, very, very sci-fi name as well. Mm. And it's beginning to affect her home life as well. There's, uh, you know, she has a routine that she goes through with her boss, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, to ascertain whether she's beginning to lose her mind or whether she's left a piece of herself behind in the person she's just vacated and so on and so forth. And she's beginning to lose touch with her estranged husband and her son a little bit. So she's a bit isolated. See, bit cold, bit withdrawn. A very Andrea Riseborough role, you might mm. you might even say. Uh, but she's fantastic in this. But her next job is to kill Sean Bean. I mean, that should be easy. <laughs> it seems right. I mean, just wait for him to be attacked by a dragon or have his head fall off or something. You just you just wait it out, and Sean Bean will die of something. That seems to be what happens in movies, except Ronan. So she is hired to kill Sean Bean, and the way into killing Sean Bean is to possess a fairly low level worker in his big mega corporation, who is dating and in fact engaged to Sean Bean's daughter, played in this by Tuppence Middleton. Okay. So the, the person she possesses is Christopher Abbott. But the transplant doesn't entirely 100% work. And he becomes aware of this presence. His consciousness, which should be subsumed by hers, begins to become aware of hers and begins to fight back and begins to lead Ooh. to fugue states and even moments where the two of them are kind of talking on the astral plane and dueling the astral plane. And this movie I thought was absolutely terrific. It's not going to be for everybody, I have to say. It's deeply weird. If you love David Cronenberg's movies, I think you're going to really, really dig this one. As I say, it takes all those Cronenbergian boxes, but I think there's a real... Brandon Cronenberg, I think, especially early Cronenberg, can be a bit sloppy in terms of some of the filmmaking approaches. And I know people are going to rip me apart for saying that, but if you go back and look at the likes of Rabid and Scanners even mm. and The Brood, you know, it was only later as he moved on through his career that the filmmaking became more sophisticated. I think Brandon Cronenberg's at that level already. Some of the images in this are absolutely indelible. It's, it's really, really well constructed. Looks absolutely beautiful. Clearly shot on a, you know, shoestring budget, comparatively speaking. But really, really great. A bit cold, bit clinical, bit emotionless, weirdly enough, given what takes place at the heart of the film. Uh, ultra violent to the point mm. where in the States it has been released 
I think it's a release uncut over here, but in the States, they've actually made a, a virtue of that by calling it Possessor Uncut because some of the violence, and there's a lot of violence, a lot of people get shot, stabbed, pokered, all sorts of stuff. Uh, you name it, someone gets killed by it in this movie. Wow. Um, but it is, it's a central conflict between Christopher Abbott, who's really, really great. It seems like a bit of a blank slate at the beginning of the movie, but as things go on, because we see his point of view, Riceberg becomes a kind of secondary presence in the film a, a little bit as the movie goes on. He is tremendous in it. So, you know, if you're into Cronenberg, if you're into mind-fucking sci-fi, uh, yeah, absolutely, I say go for it. But I would say if you're not, approach it with caution. Mm. But we gave it four stars. And I say we, I mean me. I gave it four stars <laughs> and Empire followed suit. So there we go. Four stars All then right. for Possessor. And the last couple of weeks, we've we've led with the uh, Steve McQueen small axe movie. So in previous weeks, we had Mangrove, obviously, and then Lover's Rock. And this week, once again, on BBC One, 9pm, we have the third in his five small axe films. And this one's called Red, White and Blue. And this is the one that stars John Boyega. Hell's Bells. Should people yeah. make an appointment to see this at 9pm on Sunday night, even though it clashes with I'm a Celebrity? <laughs> Absolutely. This is definitely better than I'm a Celebrity. And I will say that. It may be controversial. <laughs> it may be brave. <laughs> call, call, me, call me stupid. Hey, hey, I'm nailing my colours to that mask. Now, this is a, a f my red, white and blue colours, I guess. First time I've ever said that. Anyway, this oh, is. A I, I want to. I want to. I want to say that for posterity. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna play that back to you on the uh, on July 12th next year. Oh, good lord! Anyway, John Boyega plays Leroy Logan, who is um, in every way a kind of model citizen. He is, you know, a first generation uh, son of immigrants uh, born in this country, and he has excelled throughout his life. You know, he has gone to university. He has qualified as a forensic scientist. He is an upstanding member of the community, and he's beginning to think about joining the police. Uh, this is around 1980. When his father, Ken, who's played by Steve Toussaint, who is astonishing in this, uh, is attacked by two policemen, is basically unjustly attacked, um, victimized by two policemen, and uh, and literally, you know, faces charges, but is also trying to launch his own uh, case for compensation against them because of how badly beaten he was. And this is the incident that inspires Leroy to join the police, because he wants to change the organization from the inside. But of course, as you can imagine, that sounds bizarre to his father, who has just been attacked by police and who, you know, almost mm -hmm. sees this as a betrayal. And so it's just a fascinating look at a moment in time, at institutional racism, at the mm -hmm. personal cost of standing up to that institutional racism, at the sheer strength of character and will and determination that it takes to be that person, to try and bring about change, and and really the toll that that takes on not just you, but your your entire family and all those around you. You know, um, his community see him as a much as his father sometimes does as as a kind of a betrayer, as a traitor in some way, um, that he's now on this, you know institutionally racist force. And on the other hand, you know, the force doesn't necessarily see him as one of their own. They won't necessarily back him up if he gets into trouble. And he has to be mm -hmm. aware of that and know that. Yeah, again, it's a tough situation to be in. I don't think it's quite as howling with injustice as Mangrove was, but I think it is a real, again, just heart-wrenching look at what it takes to change a system that doesn't want you to change it and that, that mm. doesn't want you there and doesn't want you to be part of it. And it's a, 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 an incredible testament to, to Leroy's courage because he is a, mm. a real figure, obviously. And, um, and yeah, it's such I a just, resonance as well, given mm. 
John Boyega's own experiences within Hollywood over the last over the last year and his own activism as well. Exactly. Yeah. That uh, I think plays into plays into this movie as also. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine anyone else, you know, being able to do a, a job like this. And you're right; it's a, it's an incredible reflection of of his work. I think that um, I read somewhere that Leroy himself was in the crowd when John Boyega gave that Black Lives Matter speech in oh, Hyde really? Park. Oh, um, wow. they obviously, they you know worked together already. At the, this this film must have been in the can by then. But uh, again, it's just it's an extraordinary um, kind of resonance for for him and for mm. for both of them. Yeah. This is the first one of the Small Axe movies that we haven't given five stars to, but we've given it four stars. I haven't seen a single episode of I'm a Celebrity this series, but 9pm, Sunday night, I'm watching this there instead of Anton Deck goofing around in front of a castle. A castle, guys. For the love of God. I mean, is it even in a jungle? <sighs> it's just like, and they're importing the animals? Whatever. I mean, what's the scariest thing that you'd encounter in Wales? Anyway. I nearly died in Wales. Really? What yeah. happened? Uh, Fall and I went to the McCunkleth, uh Comedy Festival uh, a few years ago, and we stayed in the lovely B&B, mm-hmm. and we went to a local pub, and I had the place, and a fishbone got caught in my throat. <gasps> and when I say I nearly died, I had a, a mild it- itching at the back of my throat. But <laughs> oh my it was God, enough, mild itching! It was enough to make, we had to go to A&E in Aberystwyth the very next day. And you know what they, you know what the high tech solution they gave me, Helen? What was that, Chris? It was right up my street. They gave me a slice of bread and a can of Coca-Cola. And they said, eat this bread and then wash it down with the entire can of cola. And let's see what happens. And I did so. <laughs> and the fishbone, lo and behold, latched on to the sticky goodness that was going down my throat. And um, off it went. So there you go. That's the NHS. Wow. Cool story, bro. More power to them. Where was I? Four stars then for Red, White and Blue. Catch it this Sunday on BBC One at 9pm. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related, I'm told, fun, when we'll be joined by, well, a veritable cavalcade of people. Mm. So we'll be joined by Harris Dickinson, who is a fast-rising... British actor who told me today that he listened to this show. So apologies, Harris, for everything that's just passed and uh, <laughs> hope you're still with us. And he is the star of the fantastic new film. I think I've already said that, but it's County Lines. It is terrific and he's terrific in it. Uh, so he, uh, he's gone next week's show. Uh, host. So the Shutter Sensation host that was online and scaring the crap out of everybody when it came out in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, I say middle of the pandemic, who knows when it lent. But earlier on in the summer, anyway, host came out, but it's now getting a cinematic release. And to celebrate, I leapt onto a Zoom call with virtually the entire cast. Well, Six that people. safe. Yeah. Oh, nothing could go wrong there. Yes. Uh, I am. I, I have to report that nothing happened and everyone is fine uh, <laughs> and it's totally okay and nobody got possessed and we're all good. So everyone's happy. And uh, so that's next week. The entire cast of hosts pretty much except the demon who just didn't show up for whatever reason. And um, so there we go. And also we may be joined possibly by Figo Mortensen and Lance Henriksen. But that may not happen. 
so don't get your hopes up. <laughs> we'll see. But anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from the holiday armadillo that is James Dyer. That's a friend's reference, which I'm sure I you know got. it is. Good. The one with the holiday armadillos, Indeed. where Ross dresses up as an armadillo. <laughs> yeah. Crunchy on the outside, soft on the inside. Yes, because he's trying to teach his son Ben about Hanukkah as mm. well as Christmas. That is yeah. exactly right. <laughs> yes. And the kind of thing we would, of course, discuss on the Pilot TV podcast. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Listen, you even go near friends in that show, I'm going to rip your face off. Uh, <laughs> this, that's the preserve of this, this show. <laughs> uh, it is goodbye from Helen. Why is your squadcast name this week, Ooh, David? Um, that's a reference to Dan Levy's character in. Uh, Shit's Creek, of course. I thought it was a reference to Harvey Fierstein's character in Independence Day, because <laughs> so that's what I. he kind of oh, says to... he kind of does, doesn't he? Yeah. But no, it's, I, oh love God, him. I love him. No disrespect to him, but this is all yep. about Dan Levy. All right. Did you know, I stayed in a, a town in Portugal once, near Lisbon, but not like a big town, like a tiny little village. Lisbon. Okay. And there was an avenue Eugene Levy. In it, Avenida <laughs> Eugene Levy, and I've I've never I couldn't find I've Googled I couldn't find an explanation for that. I I really hope somebody on the town council is just a really big fan. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Avenida Eugene Levy. Wow. You see, Helen. Well, actually, you won the three fact structure. I was going to say if you had deployed that in your three fact structure, you would absolutely <laughs> I could have, have actually won. deserved to have won. Yeah, you might have, amazing. yeah, you might have deserved it. Uh, but there you go. It's goodbye from Helen, aka Ooh David, and it's goodbye from me. I am off to give Robert De Niro a call and just see what happens. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye bye. 